Uh, as they go, you might like to grab a Bible if you've got one close to you uh, and turn to Psalm 139. Read through some of the verses. We're not going to read through all of Psalm 139, but we'll read through some of the verses together as a church. I'll, I'll read some verses and then if you respond uh, with the verses uh, that are up in yellow. Um, it's a great psalm. I encourage you to read all of it. I'm not just uh, picking and choosing uh, my favourite bits from it, but just, uh, just for, for brevity, but also the ones that perhaps uh, would really help us as we think about uh, uh, what Mike's going to be speaking to us about later on, and as we think about going into a time of confession, we're going to look at these, these words. So from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Move on to verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days of were written in your book before one of them came to be. And from 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was then, is now, and shall be forever. Amen. Well, we have two uh, readings this morning. The first is going to be read by Sue from uh, Mark chapter 10. Uh, And then Mary's going to come and read from Acts chapter 8. The reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 10, beginning to read at the first verse. And it can be found on page 1014 in the Church Bibles. Divorce. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. 
He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture, and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch asked, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appears at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you gave us your Son out of love for a lost world, full of rebellious sinners like us. And we thank you that in him we find grace and truth. Grace to meet us at our point of need. Truth that speaks a word of life and hope, discipleship and holiness. And please, Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, would you fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit that we may receive this word just as that Ethiopian eunuch did. Go on our way rejoicing and by your strength and his infilling, live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll do please be seated. And uh, welcome uh, to you, whether you're in the building or online. Uh, As John said, I came over this morning and uh, I was here 
Uh, of course, during the week and as we were taking things down, it wasn't a surprise to me, but there's a certain sadness that actually the building looks like a church again uh, after the wonderful experience we've had with the Fisherman's Tale uh, over the last couple of weeks. As I came into the pulpit to preach, uh, though the building has been put back to normal, here is my tape measure as a reminder uh, that we were measuring all the bits of wood to put them back uh, in the uh, get ready for the van on Friday afternoon. We're going to hear more about Fisherman's Tale later, and John's going to give you an opportunity to share some of your stories of how the Lord most blessed you through it. Uh, we're so grateful to God and to all those uh, who made that possible over these last two weeks. But today we are continuing uh, in our six-part series, Jesus, Gender and Sexuality. Uh, as uh, I've been uh, saying over uh, recent weeks, there's an opportunity for you to ask questions. Uh, you may do so at the end of the service. We'll finish the service, a uh, chance to get a cup of coffee uh, or tea, and then come back up to the side chapel, which is where we'll do our questions after the service today. And uh, those questions you can ask uh, in person, put your hand up, or if you want to, you can use the Slido uh, website, and the details are on the screen, and you can be putting a question in there during the service, that's all right, I won't think you're answering a text or something if you're uh, tapping on your phone, uh, just noting something down that we want to explore uh, together after the service. So, here we are, it's, uh, if it is your first week in church, or your first week for a little while, uh, you may not know that you've come into the midst of this series, uh, so to get our bearings uh, two weeks ago, uh, we uh, just thought about how we go about asking questions of Jesus, particularly in areas that are contested and painful uh, and to seem at the moment uh, to uh, be taking the public consciousness uh, and a very prominent place within it, where it's costly to take a Christian stand and where many are suffering uh, as we deal with these uh, issues. And then last week, uh, we saw in that uh, account uh, of the, uh, the one called the sinful woman who comes to the house of Simon the Pharisee. And though Simon does not welcome Jesus, this woman comes and wets Jesus' feet with her tears, uh, cleans them with perfume, uh, humbles herself before him because she has discovered his forgiveness. And that forgiven, forgiveness uh, has given her a devotion to Jesus and a desire to please him in the rest of her life. He says to her those wonderful words that are ours to hear as well. If we'll come, confessing our sins to the Lord Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the gospel. Good news, not for the self-righteous, the arrogant, the self-made, those who know they've fallen short of God's glory, who cannot heal themselves, who look within and see only darkness, and who come and cling to Christ, who alone is full of light, forgiveness, and a way ahead uh, that gives our life meaning. Your, fa- your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Well, today we come to Jesus and gender. Uh, and perhaps at the moment uh, in the culture, this is the most contested part of anything we're going to be looking at over these six weeks. Although there are a number of subjects uh, that are wrestling for that top spot in terms of controversy. Uh, and so again, we're going to start today uh, by reflecting on how we need to start and stay with the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. We're then going uh, to come and see God's grace in action uh, in, uh, as the gospel uh, saves that eunuch, the outsider. Uh, and we heard that read to us 
uh, uh, in Acts chapter 8. And then in the final section, uh, considering more truth, uh, how Jesus went back to Genesis to say, who are human beings? Well, we're made in God's image. And what does that mean? It means we are made unalterably male and female. So that's a rough guide to where we're going today. But we want to start and stay with grace and truth. You'll know, of course, that Jesus is described at the beginning of John's Gospel, the Word who is God, who takes flesh and comes to dwell among us. And he comes full of grace and truth from the Father. Always gracious and never in such a way as to compromise or diminish truth. Always truthful and yet never in such a way as to diminish and minimize grace and love. Always holding those two perfectly together. That's our calling as well and it's hard. It is the calling we've set ourselves particularly here at St. John's uh, to be those who walk in truth and live in love. As we seek to follow the one who is those things Perfectly, And we know and we see in our own hearts and we see all around us the reality that love alone is not love. Because affirmation without repentance, Jesus warns, will lead straight to hell. At the same time, truth that alone is not really truth because judgment without mercy just gets you to hell quicker. So there is no refuge in either being a a radical liberal who wants nothing to do with the, uh, the holiness and truth claims of the Bible, and still less to be gained by one who arrogantly waves his floppy Bible, looking down his nose at those whose lives are a sinful mess. Now, we need to be those who know the one who is full of grace and truth, and who therefore live grace and truth, and who speak it, who wrestle with it in our own lives, and commend it in word and action to our neighbors. So God is asking searching questions of us. And again, as we've gone through this series, uh, we've seen, haven't we, it's not just the questions we ask of the Lord, but the ones he asks of us. Uh, Will the excluded and broken be welcomed here at St. John's just as they are and will be by Jesus? Uh, Particularly if they are presenting uh, as uh, one of these very modern gender non-conforming experiences. Well, they find Christ's welcome here, as they certainly will from him. Will we bear courageous and costly witness to God's purposes in making us male and female in a world that will very quickly condemn us and accuse us of being some sort of phobe if we take a stand, however graciously, where the Bible itself demands that we do? As we look into our own hearts and our own lives, will we pursue our own calling to be godly men and women, letting the standards of what that means be set by God's word and not the prevailing culture, whether the traditional culture of the 1950s or the modern culture of the 2020s. Will we instead be people who live by the word of God as we look to what it means to be a man and woman redeemed by Christ today? Those are searching questions. So we begin and we continue with grace and truth. I think it's 
uh, modeled for us in an extraordinary way in the encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well. If you're not familiar with the story, you can read it later in John chapter 4. We, uh, in this series like this, we're dipping into different bits of the Bible. We can't read them all out. But read this story uh, later if it's not familiar uh, to you. Uh, Jesus uh, is uh, in a baking hot day by a well. Uh, his disciples have gone off to the local town to get some food. And as he's there in the midday sun, a woman, a despised, rejected, marginalized woman, comes out to draw her water. The other women of the village have done so in the cool of the day before the sun comes up. Uh, she is ostracized. She must come out into the midday sun. Jesus strikes up a conversation with her which startles her because she is a Samaritan, a foreigner, in addition to being a notorious sinner. And she is a woman. A Jewish rabbi uh, would not be thought uh, of uh, lowering himself to have a conversation with one such as her. And of course, Jesus is no Jewish rabbi. He is the God full of grace and truth who comes to a lost world that we might know his forgiveness. And he begins with grace. As he says to this woman, whoever drinks the water I give him, uh, the metaphor is developed as they stand together around the well. Uh, Indeed, he says, the water I give him or her will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says to her, you have condemned yourself. Your neighbors have condemned you. But I speak to you a word of acceptance a new beginning, and of washing clean of all your sins. This is the gospel. We see it again and again in the gospels. It's the reason Christ came, not to condemn us, even if we're still busy in this current culture of inventing ways uh, to sin against him. He comes still persistently, stubbornly, not to condemn, but to forgive. And so he says, uh, come, to me and receive this water that will be for you at life everlasting. Uh, he then goes on to speak the truth to her. It's a difficult and awkward moment in the conversation. Uh, he says to her, uh, after she has tried to cover over her sinful past by saying she hasn't got a husband, he says to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. It's an awkward moment. It would be a condemning moment if Jesus had not already spoken to her that word of acceptance and forgiveness. But acceptance and forgiveness is followed, as we come to Christ, by repentance, by the acknowledgement of our sins and the turning away from them. And as grace and truth impact this woman, so she is led to worship. And that is the purpose of Christ's coming, that we might come to be adopted into God's family, to know him, not just in this life, but in all eternity. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For those are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. That excluded, damaged, sinful woman was one of those worshippers. And we're called to be as well as we come to the grace and truth of Jesus. And then as we come, so we are then sent with good news to share. She goes back to her town. Uh, She speaks. And others are drawn to Jesus for themselves. And as they encounter him personally, uh, they say, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. 
So I want to start there, not because it's particularly to do uh, with issues of how Jesus speaks on gender, but because it models for us precisely the way we need to approach this most contested, most painful, most controversial of issues in our own day. Grace and truth that leads to worship and witness. God's word has not failed in this area just because so much of it is new and indeed even being constantly invented uh, as we look around at our surrounding culture. So let's look at how grace impacts uh, someone who would be thought of today uh, as a gender outsider because he is a eunuch. Uh, This is all we know about him. We don't know his name. Uh, This was in our second reading uh, where we meet the Ethiopian eunuch. And in the story of the book of Acts, uh, what we have here uh, is uh, the outworking of uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus said to his disciples, uh, take the good news uh, to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, Ethiopia, uh, from the point of view of the book of Acts, uh, is part of the ends of the earth. You can imagine what Luke would have thought of England uh, far beyond even the western shores of the empire. So the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, uh, even now to this uh, man from Ethiopia. And uh, he's probably a Jew or a Jewish proselyte. We know the Jews had, uh, uh, their religion had spread uh, through the empire. uh, And given that this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, suggests that he was either uh, one who had become a Jew by uh, being baptized as a proselyte, uh, or was certainly uh, would have been among the God-fearers, those who attached themselves to a Jewish community uh, in exile out of Israel uh, and who knew the imperative to go to Jerusalem where God dwells to worship. And yet he went, and I think this shows you something of his faith and persistence, knowing that according to the law of God, he would be excluded This is what it said in the law of Moses. No one who has been emasculated may enter the assembly of the Lord. Can you just put yourself in his shoes for a moment? Here he was, a foreigner from a strange land who'd attached himself to the historic people of God, the people of Israel. And he's come to know the Lord enough to know that he wants to go to Jerusalem to worship him. And yet as he's been taught the faith that he wants to embrace... How this must have torn at him to read that he, for all his heart's desire to worship the Lord, would be excluded from the assembly when he got there. And yet that wasn't the final word in the Old Testament. We know that he was reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And in the Messianic age, we read this. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Ethiopians and even the English will be welcome when Christ comes. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and who hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. He was holding on to that hope that when the Messiah came, even he would be included. That was the promise 
of the gospel. Well, he was ready, wasn't he, for conversion. And so it happens uh, through God's word. He was reading uh, the book of Isaiah, just as we might. Uh, God's spirit uh, led Philip uh, to be there as uh, the witness uh, of the one who now knew that the Messiah had come. And he was able, therefore, to teach him God's word, uh, beginning with that very passage of scripture, told him the good news of Jesus. We can see how that man rejoiced, can't we? No longer excluded. Now he was right there within as one of the sons of God. For in that very passage of scripture, again, you can just imagine uh, Philip encouraging him to unroll it just a few verses uh, earlier uh, because then he would read this. Uh, He was despised and rejected uh, by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So it is today, friends. And those uh, who, for reasons uh, of deep confusion over who they are, are they men or women? How do they understand themselves today? Like this eunuch, perhaps despised and rejected by others, where will they find a friend? Well, they'll find a friend in the man of sorrows, won't they? And not only a friend to draw alongside them, but a saviour to forgive them. One who is pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities, the one whose punishment means we have peace with God. Friends, our fundamental mindset, the starting place wherewith we engage with the world in dreadful confusion over sex and gender is here, the man of sorrows who drills alongside the broken, excluded and sinful in order that they might find in him welcome and forgiveness. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch discovered. They found some water. Peter, Philip baptized him, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. We begin, as Jesus does, with grace. We do not neglect truth. What would that eunuch have discovered as he went on to follow Christ back in Ethiopia as he continued in his job as Chancellor of the Queen's Exchequer? We don't know. We never hear from him again. But his whole life now, and being accepted, belongs to Christ. And his question would have been, how do I now serve the Lord Jesus as I return in my daily life? So that is our question as well. And the truth that is in God's word is that God has made us male and female. And it is a truth uh, that is uh, uh, taught to us at the beginning of the scriptures and rearticulated clearly and forcefully by Jesus himself. In Mark 10, Jesus is tested. Uh, he's asked a question about divorce uh, and he provides uh, uh, and, and is uh, provided with an assertion of its legitimacy by the Pharisees as a question and an assertion. Uh, but Jesus answers by expounding the Creator's purpose in marriage. Uh, We will come back uh, to this in the parallel passage in Matthew 19 uh, in coming weeks, but that principle is the one we want to notice here. Our culture is teeming 
with numerous questions and bold assertions about gender. So Jesus points us back to the creator's purpose. And if we are to be his witnesses, then we also must do as he did. Yes, of course, graciously. That's where we've been so far. But also faithfully. We were made male and female in God's image, Jesus says. Uh, Jesus quotes at Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. It remains uh, his clear definition of marriage. And as I say, we shall come back to it uh, in coming weeks. But our focus today on is this quotation of Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The implications of that are profound. And we only have the opportunity, really, uh, just to scratch the surface and to do a few pointers in the directions where that leads. Uh, the first obvious one is that we are created as a sexually dimorphic species, to use the language of the biologist. There is no third sex or alternative gender. Uh, modern biology, indeed, uh, has once again revealed the truthfulness of God's word, where many ancient philosophies and modern flights of fancy fail. It's ironic uh, that we have never been uh, clearer in our understanding uh, that every cell in the human body is itself witness to the maleness or femaleness uh, of who we are created to be, and yet we live in a very culture that seeks to deny and obliterate that. That's an extraordinary and tragic irony. We know far more about how we are made, and every investigation reveals that right to the core of our DNA, we are male and female. And yet we've never lived in an age that seeks to reject that so profoundly. We alone in creation reflect our creator. This is the basis for the unique worth and dignity of every human being. We could linger here for another whole sermon. We won't today. But we are not just another animal. Yes, we're made as mammals, sexually dimorphic. But uniquely, we are made to reflect our creator, made for relationship with him and in him to find that perfect relationship with each other as well. We image God as male and female, so neither man nor woman fully images God alone. We only do so together, and we only do so as those who are man or woman. It is precisely as we are different that we are united in uniquely reflecting our Creator's image. And this maleness and femaleness, therefore, is created by God. It is neither fluid, nor assigned, nor chosen, to use three words from the current debates. Our sex is a created given, and has been so since Adam and Eve walked on the earth. Now, of course, this used not to be controversial. Uh, even ten years ago, uh, I could go into school and teach this verse uh, without causing any great upset. But I've noticed on uh, Church of England Education Department documents, they've started to drop the last phrase from Genesis 1.27, male and female, 
He created them as an official nervousness now. Yes, God created us in his image. Let's leave out the rest, the awkward, sexually dimorphic assertion that we are actually made male and female. That which was once a commonplace has now become a controversy, and it is a genuine controversy. Uh, This is a verbatim quote from a recent employment tribunal where a man uh, lost his job uh, because he said that when he was dealing with transgendered clients, uh, he would use the name they wished but did not feel that as a Christian he was able to use the pronouns that people asked of him. As he felt it would be a breaking of the ninth commandment, he would not be bearing true witness uh, if he used a chosen pronoun. And he uh, said that as a Christian, his belief rooted back to Genesis 1.27. This is what the employment tribunal said. Belief in Genesis 1.27, lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to transgenderism, in our judgment, are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others, specifically here, transgender individuals. Do you hear that? That's an English employment court. Belief in Genesis 1.27 is incompatible with human dignity and elsewhere in the judgment is therefore not a view that is worthy of respect in a democratic and civilized society. I didn't think we'd come to this day quite so quickly, but here we are. We have. And as we bear witness to Christ and his teaching of Genesis 1 and 2, we need to be aware that for some of us it will cost us our jobs. It will certainly cost us our credibility and lead to some very painful conversations. But Jesus' words are not unclear. It just will take courage and grace to humbly and graciously stand by them. But we may have a theological question too. Genesis 1 and 2 speak of a world that is perfect, where God has made everything and it is all good. What about the fall? We all carry the brokenness of sin in our bodies. After all, Paul says this, the creation itself was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We, all of us, have bodies that cause us some level of distress If we don't, uh, well, you are remarkably and uniquely blessed and almost certainly extremely young as well. Our bodies fail us in all sorts of ways. They disappoint us. They're not the bodies that we would have chosen, especially as life goes on and does its work to them. And that frustration extends to our created identity as men and women. Which of us men would say we are wholly the men we would want to be? Which of us women would say we're wholly the women we want to be? We know our shortcomings. We know our conscience and what it says to us. No, the frustration extends even to what it means to be a man and a woman. That is true, but yet the scripture is clear. It does not obliterate the distinction. Because later in Genesis, in Genesis 5, after the fall, after the judgment of God... Well, Moses reasserts that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. We continue to be in the image of God and therefore male and female. 
In Matthew 19, Jesus makes the same point. Uh, having quoted uh, Genesis 1, at the beginning the Creator made them female, uh, male and female, he now says, in a world filled with us hard-hearted sinners, some are made eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men. Jesus knows we live in a fallen and broken world, and that extends to our sex or gender. Some were born that way. Uh, The tragic effects of the fall uh, mean that for some, uh, our biological sex is indeterminate or unclear. Some were made that way by men, by the wicked actions of people, doubtless like the Ethiopian eunuch. How we need, therefore, the Saviour. But the Saviour comes for eunuchs. The Saviour comes to offer his grace and truth to all of us. So how then should we live? Well, again, only time to sketch out some very brief contours. Accept your body as a gift. We've started but with Psalm 139. I'm so glad we did because God gave you the body you've brought to church this morning and you are to receive it as his gift to you. And if you are a man who struggles with being a man or a woman who struggles with being a woman, know that God has given you your body a sexed body. You are a man or a woman. And as we accept our bodies as a gift, at the same time and in the same breath, we long for our deliverance from their brokenness. Whether that's illness or frailty uh, or some uh, sin, perhaps some sin connected with the way uh, uh, that's intrinsic to our gendered nature. We ask with Paul, we cry with Paul, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God, we have one who will, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in the meantime, know this, uh, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. Repentance means living with your God-given sex. And to state that uh, means only, of course, to invite questions about how that works out in practice. We'll have to pursue those either afterwards or long beyond this day. What does it mean to honor God with our gendered bodies? Well, negatively, God's word is clear. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. And we say, but isn't that in the law uh, that Christ has fulfilled? Yes, but it's rooted in our created nature as men and women, and so it abides as an injunction for us as Christians. Or positively, and we certainly haven't got time to go into the details of this complex passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, but the point is this. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. And so in the church, in the new covenant community, we worship as sisters and brothers. Each one brings their own unique contribution as redeemed men and women. So we're called to reflect, again, both the equality and order of the creation. More for the question time in what that looks like as it works out in practice. And as we bear witness in the world around us, we need to understand the times that will be perplexing to many of us. Until the mid-20th century, gender didn't exist uh, in the modern sense of the word, though now it seems to be all-consuming. In the 2020s, the culture that is seeking dominance asserts that gender identity, which is my choice to define who I want to be, is more important than sex, which is still largely regarded 
as a biological term, as a biological given. As one proponent in this movement puts it, uh, gender is between your ears and not between your legs. And it is gender that is coming to be fundamental in the modern understanding. And that affects the way we offer help uh, to somebody who has a profound sense of unease with the way in which they've been made. It's not new to have that unease. Uh, For some, profoundly and awfully so, it is part of living in a broken world. And if sex is a given, then this is a psychological problem and we need help so that our minds come to accept the reality of our bodies. But if gender is dominant, as is the modern assertion, then this is a physical problem and therefore we must have hormone treatments and surgeries. The body must be brought into conformity with the mind. And in times of confusion and suffering, uh, we are caught in a cultural conflict You know, one of the best books on transgenderism, uh, written from a Christian perspective, compassionately, has been withdrawn from Amazon because it contains, in their view, hate speech. And yet they continue to sell Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. That strikes me as a certain inconsistency. Or if you listen to the BBC uh, Radio 4 Today program this week, uh, if you've listened all week, you will have heard uh, an interview as uh, these debates are going on around the inclusion of trans women in women's sports. Uh, One of those they interviewed was a trans woman, that is a biological man identifying uh, as a woman. Um, Their particular sport was uh, cage fighting. Uh, It turns out after the interview it was revealed that this is a person who has gloried Uh, in cracking the skull of a physical woman uh, uh, by virtue of his great strength in that sport. Uh, And he particularly said uh, that he gloried uh, in uh, doing physical damage uh, to women who asserted that men cannot become women. Well, the BBC, of course, has apologised. They didn't do their research. They didn't realise. But it rather makes the point of why women are so concerned about letting biological men enter their sports when the one who is supposed to be arguing the case delights in the physical damage he can do to women in that arena. And if this doesn't seem to affect you very much, well, then it's because you're probably over 25. If you're in school, if you've been brought up in this generation, these issues are everywhere all the time. I heard last week of a a teenage girl in one of our schools uh, whose uh, mother said that all of her friends, out of all of her friends, she was the only one who still identified as a heterosexual girl. The the, uh, uh, profound uh, embrace of this movement among the young, and especially the adolescents, uh, is something you would not appreciate if you do not move in their world. We cannot avoid these issues, and our children certainly cannot. Uh, For example, uh, in the standard advice now offered to schools in Cheshire West, uh, if a trans boy wants to compete in the 100 metres, then the best practice is to remove any girls who object from the race. Or if a trans boy wants to change in the girls' changing rooms, then the official advice is to remove the girls who object from the girls' changing room. This is no longer the extreme edge of somewhere else. This is now our community, our culture, our schools, our young people who are facing these questions almost on a daily basis in our schools. So in times of confusion and suffering, well, friends, we have a gospel of clarity and compassion. 
a gospel of truth and grace. If we do not take our stand here, well then who will? If we do not defend our young people, if we do not bear witness to him who alone can bring forgiveness and acceptance of who we were made to be, as well as acceptance by the God who made us, and then lead us on in the truthfulness of bearing witness to his word, well, then we are falling short in our generation of that witness that he commands us to bear. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, you are full of grace and truth. All of us stand here today in need of your grace. All of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory, not least in the way that we have lived as men and women. We thank you that as we come to you broken and repentant, so you speak that word to us. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord Jesus, as we go, we go into a world that is confused and divided and hostile and broken. Please would you, by your grace, enable us to bear witness in life and in word, a truth that you have made us to be men and women, renewed in Christ and sent forth to serve you in this world. Amen.